Hey there, welcome to another episode of Ministry Minded Podcast, the show that seeks to marvel at the mercy of God that meets us in our messy ministries. I'm your host, Brad Gray, and uh, today I'm thrilled to bring to you another fantastic podcast, and this time I'm joined by my good friends over at 1517 and Christ Hold Fast. That's Daniel Emery Price and Eric Sorensen. Uh, Dan and Eric are longtime friends. They are the dynamic duo for all things Christ Hold Fast and their podcast, 30 Minutes in the New Testament, which we uh, talk about a little bit in the in this show itself. Uh, it's always a joy to talk to these brothers uh, because I know we're going to talk about grace and the gospel and Jesus Christ, and uh, those things are always encouraging to me, and I hope they will be to you as well. And I think that's what you're going to find uh, throughout this uh, discussion as we seek to tackle the doctrine of universal objective justification. Now, don't let that mouthful uh, scare you away. Uh, I hope you haven't clicked off already. Uh, Dan and Eric do an incredible job uh, defining uh, just really what this doctrine is and what it means and why it's so important for the Christian uh, for the Christian life and for uh, anyone who believes in the gospel to come to grips uh, with this doctrine. As scary as it might sound, it's actually incredibly relieving uh, once you are made to understand what it means and just how we are made to see it throughout the scriptures. It's all over the Bible, this doctrine, and it is incredibly freeing and faith-building. So I'm so excited for you to hear this conversation. It was a joy to speak with Dan and Eric. They are such good friends of mine. I have enjoyed working with them uh, through 1517 and Christ Hold Fast and coming across their paths at conferences and such. And so I'm, I'm so excited to uh, just catch up with them and for you to hear this conversation. So uh, that's enough of that. Let's just get to it. Uh, let's get right into this uh, conversation about universal objective justification. Thanks, uh, Dan and Eric, for coming on the podcast. It's been so uh, well. It's been quite a while since I've seen both of you guys. So, uh, how are you? How's everything going? How is life? Uh, everything is great, man. Uh, everything is going very, very well. Uh, the uh, we're gear- gearing up right now for a bunch of uh, a bunch of conferences and stuff. But uh, yeah, everything everything is great. Uh, me, me and Eric have been doing a bunch of things together. We're sort of like a package deal now, Eric. This is pretty much the case. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, if there's a teaching uh, or a study or podcast or whatever, chances are Dan and I are doing it together. I love it. I, I feel like you guys are like the Mike and Mike of 1517 Network or something like that. I don't know. Um, I, I'm not sure who Mike and Mike are. Are those sports guys? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think so. They were, but then they had a big falling out. So hopefully, you guys don't have that too. <laughs> yeah, it, wait, let me see if I can. Uh, this will show how knowledgeable I am. Is it Mike Golick and Mike Greenberg? Yep, that was them. Okay, yes, yes. And so Greenberg's got his own show now, and Golick's got uh, some other thing. So I do know that. Yeah, Dan and I were kind of like we're kind of like them before they had their nasty breakup. Yeah, well, somehow <laughs> somehow we became the. Uh, the sort of resident New Testament guys of 1517. So if it, if it has to do with the New Testament, they're like, Oh, that's Dan and Eric. That's what they do. Yeah. And, and I'm fine with that. It's is bird. So yeah. Yeah. yeah like it's weird. That- on that Holy ground uh, that bird. <laughs> yeah. It's weird. Cause like I, I co-host the 40 minutes in the old Testament podcast, but they're never like Dan's an old Testament guy. 
<laughs> they they they're more like Dan's a good facilitator of that podcast. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's definitely you know with Chad, you can just you can let him run, man, and he'll take that line and take it to places that you've never really connected before, never thought about before. I mean, he truly is a scholar of scholars. Uh, and you know, Dan, you and I are just a couple of dudes that you know are trying to run through. Dude, I'm on, I'm on I'm on 40 <laughs> minutes in the Old Testament to bring levity, drop a couple of one-liners, and you know that, that's that's kind of what I'm there for. Oh <laughs> uh, well, how are you, Eric? How's everything with you and in, in your ministry and your family? Well, everything's good. I mean, I, uh, this summer was really busy for for me. I had you know I just I traveled quite a bit and spoke quite a bit. Uh, so I'm really happy to be into somewhat of a routine. You know, I've got two churches I'm, uh, that I oversee as a pastor. One is a senior pastor of the church plant in New York city. And then, um, I'm an associate pastor part-time at a church in New Jersey. And so, um, it's good to get back into a rhythm of things. It's good that my kids are back in school. Like I, I you know, I have three boys. Uh, one of them is in high school now, and then I've got an eighth grader and a second grader. Uh, and just to get into routine, man, is a good thing. So, uh, I, I, physically I'm not doing as good as I normally am because I've got allergies like crazy right now, as you can probably hear in the sound of my voice, but, uh, but overall I'm doing okay, man. I can't complain. Well, that is great. I, I've asked you guys to be on here because, well, let me just give you a little background on the, how this conversation came to be. Of course, I'm a, uh, long, I'm a big podcast listener. And of course, which means I both listen to uh, 30 minutes and 40 minutes um, from 1517. And you, you, both of you went through um, the epistles of the Romans recently. And uh, in the course of one of your discussions through that book, I remember uh, you, you guys introducing me to this idea, this doctrine, this, this term, uh, universal objective justification, which I think you brought in to your conversation in either chapter three or five. I, I can't really remember. Um, but I was struck by the inference of that doctrine. And then it kind of came back to me um, because I was, I'm going through a study of the pastoral epistles in my church on Sunday evenings. And we, we recently came across the text in the second chapter of First Timothy, which reads in verses five and six, where Paul writes, uh, For there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. And I was just struck by that phrase, a ransom for all. And I was thinking, oh yeah, Dave and Eric, where I think we're just talking about this. And so uh, I figured you would be the best to talk to uh, just in terms of kind of getting a one-on-one on kind of what this means and what the inference is of this doctrine of universal objective justification. So I'll leave the floor up to you, uh, Dan or Eric, whoever wants to chime in first and just kind of uh, explaining kind of what this is and kind of where it comes from and what its uh, sort of ramifications are for the gospel and those that uh, ascribe uh, their faith to the gospel. Sure. Yeah. Well, we'd be happy to to talk about it and try and unpack it a little bit. Um, I'm going to let Dan do a lot of the unpacking here. Uh, I do want to say something up front um, because of the word I mean, let's, if we just break down the three words that are used in the phrase first to define them, it might be helpful. And then, you know, Dan, you can, you can sort of contribute here. 
The idea behind universal objective justification is that one, it, the word universal means for everyone. It means, so we're talking the, the entire world, all of creation, all of created human beings. Uh, that's what we mean by the term universal. Objective means that it's something that is done outside of us, something that is, it is the opposite of subjective. It is something that we can look to as a fact. It's something that happened. It's something that, uh, again, it's not something that comes from within. It's something outside. And then justification is the term for, well, salvation or the term for uh, God declaring uh, someone to be righteous or to declaring them to be forgiven and covered in the righteousness of Christ, okay? So take those things all together. What we are saying we believe is that God has, through Jesus Christ, objectively, outside of people, he is, through Jesus Christ, provided the means of salvation for all people. All people have been ransomed, to use the, the words of First Timothy chapter 2, verse 6, as an example. This does not mean that we believe in universalism. And I want to get that out of the way right at the beginning, because I this is often very confusing for people. Universalism teaches that everybody will be, in fact, saved. That is not what this doctrine teaches. It does teach that everybody has been atoned for, though. And so I, without going any further, without just completely taking the floor the entire time, Dan, why don't I turn it over to you and you can flesh out some of that a little more. Yeah, well, I mean, people get skittish when they hear you use the term like universal objective justification because you have universal and justification and, and there's only one word in between them. And so it, it can it can seem a little like, oh, my gosh, what are you talking about? Like, did he just talk about universal justification? And I, we did if you're talking about objective justification. And so uh, this really, if you if you boil it all down, is finds its roots in uh, in the imputation of Christ. And so the, the idea is that Christ comes and he becomes the sin of the world. So the sin of the world resides with Christ, and then he uh, is put to death for that sin. So the, the wages of sin is death. Christ dies for the sin of the world. This means then that the sin of the world is taken care of. So he is objectively, this happened outside of, out of view, but it happened inside of space and time on Calvary. God has taken care of sin, the sin of the world. Now, what you might ask is like, okay, so th what what's left to do then? Like, so every, everybody is everybody is saved. Everybody does it. That's the, the end of it. Well. The subjective benefits of the objective atonement and justification of God uh, are applied via means. And, uh, and so we know that we are uh, saved by grace through faith. And so faith 
is uh, the way that you are you sort of tap into the subjective just the, the the subjective benefits of this objective justification, and God does this through uh, a number of ways. So I mean, we would say that He does this through the preach word. That this is sort of like this pipeline. It's the delivery system of the of the benefits of this. Uh, he does this through uh, baptism. He does this through the Lord's Supper. Uh, he does this through. Um, the, the word of absolution, you know, the word of forgiveness. Uh, and so all of, all of these, these are all the means that God uses to apply what he has done to the individual person. Uh, one of the ways you can, you can think about this is when Jesus says, uh, of the, says to the father of those who are crucifying him, father, forgive them. Now, how can Jesus ask God to do this? Is this, a, is this an empty request? Uh, is, this a, is this a request that God won't, won't honor? Uh, you are talking about Jesus who only ever says what the Father tells him to say, and he's perfectly aligned with the Father. And what, he's, what he, he is doing there is saying that, that he is going to, is taking on the sin of the world that they may be forgiven. You see this same thing happen with Stephen when he's being stoned, and he says, do not hold this sin against them. How, is, this, is this even a possible thing? And the reality is, is that God hasn't held those sins against them because Christ has become those sins. Now, whether someone believes this or not is another was another issue. Uh, but uh, one of the ways that we're we're fond of saying this is that uh, there aren't uh, un undied for or unforgiven people that that go to hell. People go to hell because they do not want uh, and they reject uh, and they decline and not only that but are hostile to the gift that god is is giving uh, is desiring to give them which is the subject of benefits now this also goes into a place where you have to hold some things in paradox where where uh this isn't as though you get to make some kind of choice about this that god has still has to overcome our unbelief and he is the one that causes us to by his grace uh have faith, believe in these things, and then he delivers these things through it to us through me. Now, there's a number of texts that we can go into, and we can go into that Romans five text, and I think that that will that will help. Um, we'll also see some stuff in second. You can see some stuff in Second Peter as well that talks about this. But that's the real big idea. The real big idea is: uh, Did Christ become the sin of the world um, or not? And did he take on the wages of that sin or not? Uh, and so we would say, yes, he did take on the sin of the world, became that sin, and the wages of that sin, death, he died that death for all men. Uh, and so sin is done away with uh, in that way. So the practical, um, one of the practical implications of this, obviously, is that we would, or our view would disagree with the idea of a limited atonement. Uh, this is an, an idea that uh, sometimes is formulated as Christ died for the elect or Christ died for those whom were those who he predestined before the foundation of the world. Uh, we know many great Christians that hold to that view. We're good friends with those Christians that hold to that view and people that hold to that view. We've had speak at conferences that we're a part of. And uh, so but we would, uh, theologically, we would disagree with that. And we would say, no, the text of Scripture seems to be, 
pretty clear in multiple places from multiple different authors that Jesus didn't merely die for the elect's sins. Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. And so when John says in John one twenty nine, John the Baptist says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, we read that as literally the world. We don't see anything in the original language to suggest another reading, an alternate reading. And so, and there's many other passages that we can go over and maybe we'll have time to do that. But it's just, just as a matter of contrasting for the listener who might uh, be wondering what the sort of cash value difference is, that's one difference. Well, I think it's so important to, to, I, I've just been confronted by this, this doctrine in the sense that, um, it's so important to believe in a, a finished atonement. And I think that that's what kind of what this is tending towards. Um, the idea that when you repent, you're not laying hold of something that is partially done, or you're not somehow unlocking something that uh, Jesus does at that moment. You're putting your faith in something that is already finished, which is, it goes back to Jesus's words on the cross. It is finished, but it also, I was, um, Dan and Eric, you were talking about Jesus becoming sin. And um, I, I've been reading through the sermons of this old um, old writer. His name is Tobias Crisp, which if you've heard of him, you might know that he was uh, publicly outed and uh, excommunicated from the church in a large degree because he was uh, accused of being antinomian. Uh, because he uh, was preaching on several occasions through Isaiah 53 and on Second Corinthians 5, obviously, where it says that Christ was made to uh, made sin for us, and the idea uh, and all the ramifications that come from that. And I've been reading through it to kind of see, uh, is that true? Uh, was he really antinomian and all those the things that go along with that? And what's so funny to me, uh, looking back on it through my uh, obviously modern lens, is the fact that. Um, I don't think that he is at all. He's just articulating the gospel, uh, the the full ramifications of the gospel, which are quite scandalizing at times, which tell us that he is the sins of the, of the world in that moment. And when he dies, he pays the full penalty for them all. He doesn't leave a note of sin unpaid for, as as you said. And I think that that is, to me, one of the most crucial things to believe when it comes to the gospel, because if there's something unpaid for, then who has to pay for it? Well, I do through something that I have to do. And obviously that has a lot of ramifications for how grace and works operate, which is uh, talked about at length through the epistles. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Jesus himself gets basically the word didn't exist, but he's essentially accused of being an antinomian all throughout his ministry. And uh, and so, you know, a lot a lot of people will say, you know, if you don't that we I would I would be opposed to someone being an actual antinomian. That is to say that the law has no purpose that like they're they're that the Christian doesn't never that he never needs to hear the law. Um, that That's what an antinomian would say. Like once you're a Christian, you never need to hear the law again. So I would disagree with that. Um, however, um, if if you never ever get accused of being an antinomian, you're probably not preaching the gospel full strength. And so I would I would say this is absolutely true either. Paul did got accused of it, um, Jesus got accused of it, and then throughout church history, people you know Luther got accused of it. Uh, so I mean I've been accused of it. I think everybody here has probably been accused of it. 
I think Dr. Martin Jones was one of the um, was the guy who who basically said that quote that you paraphrased. If you're not accused of being an antinomian, you're probably not preaching the gospel. Yeah, yeah, and. Yeah. So, yeah, man, the, uh, uh, the and it is there is this tendency that we have to say that Jesus died for your sins. Of course, that's that's fine. Uh he did, but the language of the Bible is is more scandalous than that because it it, it says that he became sin. Right? Like that that sin that he that he took it like, it, like he took it not just not just even on his shoulders, but became it. So it, that your sins belong to him. Yeah, well, Luther doesn't even have any problem saying that in that sense, Jesus is the greatest sinner who ever lived. Not because he commits sin, because he doesn't, but that he identifies himself so closely with your sin that they no longer belong to you, but belong to him. Mm. Uh, um, And this is important. All of your unrighteousness. Yeah, this is the gospel that Christ died for the ungodly. Um, and the way he does this is by becoming their ungodliness. And this is important for the reverse of that. So this is what's called double imputation. So that Christ becomes all your sin. It's as if his sin is yours. God reckons your sin to him as if he was the one who committed it. In reverse, uh, God counts Christ's righteousness to you and me. as not Not just like kind of puts it on you or anything. It is as if it is yours. Yeah. And so to the degree that Christ becomes your sin is the degree to which you are righteous. Uh, And this is really important. And this is not just a mere formulation of a, of a doctrine, you know, or, or kind of piecing together versus various texts to come to this idea. Uh, It literally is almost the exact words of second Corinthians five 21 that says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Notice it says he made him to be sin. Why? So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. I mean, it's it's literally right there. It's That is actually what the reformers referred to. I mean, this verse is what the reformers referred to as the great exchange. This is the great exchange that takes place. He takes all of my sin and I get all of his righteousness. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, uh, maybe the the uh, uh, the best text to sort of see the this is is in Romans five, uh, and, and the whole chapter is about this. But uh, I'll start with uh, verse eighteen, the, the end of chapter five, where it says, uh, Paul writes, "As one trespass, speaking of Adam, uh, led to condemnation for all men." So this is a this is that Adam fell, and because of that, we are all in Adam. We uh, we are all born with original sin. We're all guilty. We're all born under condemnation. So one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Now, the, the all men and all men are the same group of people, and obviously all of us are, are uh, born in sin because of Adam. He says, Christ's act of righteousness, this is his act of, of being righteous, leads to justification and life for all men. And he says, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, this is obedience to go to the cross to take on the sins of the world, the many will be made righteous. And then he says, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so Paul really spells out 
this this uh, great exchange that happens at the cross. And it isn't sort of this thing that's potential. This isn't what he's talking about. You're not potentially a sinner because of Adam. You are a sinner. You are you are born into sin because of the fall. So uh, this is the way it is with Christ as well. He has made the world right. That God has declared the world forgiven and justified. The question is: Will the will the subjective benefits of that declaration be applied to you? Uh, and this is done via faith, which Paul obviously uh, goes on and on about. And then, and God uses means to bring about that faith, the word uh, and the sacraments. And so the, the idea here is that uh, you, you don't, you don't uh, miss out on the, on the benefits of eternal life uh, because they weren't for you. Uh, you. You miss out on them because you don't want them, uh, because you would prefer to stand in your own righteousness. This is the reason, this is a sneaky thing. The reason people go to hell is not because they're not died for. It's not even because they're not forgiven. They they go to hell because they want to do it themselves. They don't want the gift. Uh, and at the end of the day, uh, the person who does not uh, have, is not in Christ, does not put his, has his faith in Christ, will then be, outside of Christ, where the benefits of all that Christ has done reside. Now for a uh, quick break to talk about this podcast presenting sponsors. Today's episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast is proud to be partnered with Anchor Podcasts. Anchor is the easiest way for anyone to make a podcast. If you have a latent idea that's just kind of lying around for a show you would like to record one day, I'm confident that anyone could use this platform to host, record, and distribute your podcast, turning your idea into a reality. Anchor puts everything you need to be successful all in one place. You can start a new recording right from your mobile device. They also have convenient creation tools that allow you to edit your audio files so they sound crisp and great. Anchor also distributes your podcast for you, letting listeners find your show almost everywhere, including Spotify, Anchor Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and several others. And best of all, it's free. There are no hosting fees or monthly subscriptions or minimum listener counts, just an easy-to-use platform to get your podcast out there at no cost to you. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm today to get started. Today's show is brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. Research shows that the two primary reasons people don't read their Bible is that they're too busy or they don't understand what they're reading. The goal and the mission of the Christian Standard Bible is to have more people reading and understanding the scriptures by engaging in a translation that's easy to read but is also faithful to the original languages. The Christian Standard Bible strives to be accurate, readable, and shareable. A Bible that pastors can feel confident preaching from while also being a translation that all church members feel comfortable reading on their own. To find out more about the Christian Standard Bible, go to csbible.com. Now back to Dan and Eric. Well, and not to double up on the controversial things to talk about, but I, in a recent sermon through Mark, I actually mentioned that very thing when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. I think it's in Mark chapter 2, um, where he talks about the unpardonable sin. And what is the unpardonable sin? It's not some 
fanciful thing. The unpardonable sin is going to the grave thinking that your sin hasn't been pardoned and that you have to pardon it yourself. Um, that to me is how I read that Jesus's conversation there. It's not that there isn't pardon for that one specific sin that's outside of the realm of the scope of the cross. It's the fact that there's people and the Pharisees were on the verge of this, I think is what Jesus is intimating is that they're on the verge of committing this unpardonable sin, which is going to the grave thinking that you're the ones who are responsible for, uh, for your pardon in the first place. Yeah. Here's, I mean, a real practical implication of this doctrine and why it is uh, so comforting. There are, I've been a pastor now for over 12 years and I have sat, uh, by many a deathbed with many a family member grieving and there's never a time that people begin to wonder and worry more about their standing with God than when they're facing death. I can look a person in the eyeballs with my, without my fingers crossed and declare to them that it is a fact that Christ Jesus died for them, the, their name. As Paul Tripp has said, Jesus didn't go to the, Jesus went to the cross with names. He died for you. I can say for you, he atoned for your sin. I can say you are forgiven based on what Jesus Christ has done and be completely uh, filled with integrity as I say it, because the scriptures teach such a thing. So it, it, the value of it is that I, I can give this parishioner with no fears whatsoever the gospel in all of its fullest expression, even as they're uh, maybe filled with worry, uh, maybe they're filled with doubt, maybe they're just not sure. And maybe they've been taught to look to the strength of their faith to determine whether they really are saved, which is so often the case. And I get to re-set uh, their face and their gaze instead toward the one who says he's already done everything for them. And that when he said it is finished on the cross, his fingers weren't crossed. He meant it, and he meant it for them. Well, the, the other thing about this uh, is that doing that, you are proclaiming, and this is what Christ says, you know, to proclaim his death. This is his death for the world, Right. Until he comes, and we do this. He does this in connection with the Lord's Supper. But this is the message that we've been given—the message of the cross. And so, when you do this, you—if you—if you are a monergist, if you believe that faith is something that that God that God births, that you can't muster up faith, that you can't just like decide that you're going to to uh, believe this, that you will not. What? But if you also believe then that God works through the preaching of the word and that he brings the dead to life, that he, that he instills faith in people, what you get to do then is preach this. And then you don't have to say, and if you'll only believe it, this, this, and this will happen. Or, or God is ready to have you if you'll just ask. You don't, you don't have to do any of that. Uh, you proclaim God, his part. You just have to walk down here to the front and do your part. No, none of this. None of this. All you have to do is proclaim what Christ has done, and then trust that God is able through the proclamation of the gospel to to bring people to faith to believe it. 
and so I, I don't, um, I had a parishioner one time uh, tell me, he said, you know what the difference is between what you do on Sunday morning and, and other churches I've been in? And we were sitting there and he had a, he had a glass of wine. And uh, he said, my whole life, uh, people have, if this glass of wine is Jesus, he's like, people all the time have slid this across and said, this is a glass of wine. And if you want it, if you'll accept it, uh, if you'll reach out and take it, it's yours. He's like, you slide the glass of wine across the table and say, that's a glass of wine and it's yours. And you don't ask me to do anything. You just proclaim to me what it is and that it's for me. Uh, and this is what you get to do when you believe that God is able to save and that only God is able to save, that there is no convincing that that I can do to to cause people to believe. I've been giving a message to proclaim, not uh, not a message to go out and convince people of. And so we proclaim the gospel and then we trust that God through the Holy Spirit will uh, bring people to faith to believe it. And so you you get to go around and just shove the gospel to, across the table to people be like, this is the gospel and it's for you. Uh, this is what God has done in Christ for you. Uh, I That's the end of it. And you get to put a real period at the end of it is finished. Uh, whether they believe this or not, it, it's not up to you. Uh, th- it is not your job. Uh, yeah, that's the Spirit's work. Yeah, and so it, this this doctrine helps with that, where you get to proclaim this finished universal work uh, to, the, to the sinner and say, your, Christ has taken your sin. Christ has died for your sin. God has, has reconciled the world to himself. This is for you. And you don't have to put anything on them uh the 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 work then is in god's hands well and is can there be anything more freeing than knowing that all of that sin and garbage that is in your heart has been utterly done away with already i mean i think that that is the true freedom of the gospel is right there is the fact that we can know it's already done yeah yeah and brad you know what you you probably know this because you're a sinner like me and i know eric is a sinner the uh (laughs) What is also true about this is this is also not like the one-time message. It's not like the conversion proclamation. So you proclaim this message, and then God creates faith, and then people believe like, oh, good, like Christ has died for my sin, and God has given me his righteousness. This is wonderful. Now on with it. Uh, I know for me, this is something I need to hear always. I always need to hear this again and again and again um, so that— uh, this is why Paul uses this sort of language. It doesn't make any sense where he says, sometimes he says uh, we've been saved. And then so he says, sometimes we're being saved. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, because this is the experience that we have that uh, I'm, I'm like being converted over and over and over again, because I still struggle with unbelief and I, and I still struggle with sin. Now Christ has taken all that sin, but I need to hear again in time and space right now, again, that Christ is enough. Uh, that I'm in him and that his righteousness is mine, that all of my sin resides uh, with him on the cross. The wrath of God resides in the wrath of the uh, at the cross and not on me. And this is not something I need to hear once and then on with it. This isn't something I need to hear once a month. This is something I need to hear as often as I can possibly hear it. Yep. And, you know, it's like the, the it's like the trope of, quote, gospel centered people. That, you know, I don't know if it's a real Martin Luther quote, but where whoever said it, that we preach the gospel to ourselves every day because we forget it every day. And I think that that's 
not just a cliche. It's not just a trope. I That to me is what I cling to because <laughs> I know my heart, it is rebellious to the core. Rebellious, not often in, in ways in which people can see. It's not like I'm doing some egregious thing all the time, but it's often rebellious in, in that I believe I can merit this sort of righteousness on my own by whatever I'm doing, by the things that I'm saying, by uh, the way I'm interacting with the people that I'm interacting with. My good Samaritanness will be my my righteousness. And that is uh, the rebellion that I think is often uh, unnoticed, that is often overlooked uh, because it appears so good. But such is the rebellion that I think that even Jesus takes up to the cross with him. He takes that self-righteous rebellion with him. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, I would say preach the gospel for to yourself if you don't have anybody else to do it. Uh, I th- I believe that that yeah, Luther said I preach the gospel to uh, to my congregation every week because every week they forget it. Um, so I would even say that wh- if at all if you're at all able, whether it's through podcasts or you actually have a preacher or a friend or whatever, that go- you need a preacher. And I don't mean like you necessarily ha- it has to be a pastor. I mean another Christian, somebody. To proclaim the forgiveness of sins to you over and over again, because one of the one of the difficulties in preaching the gospel to ourselves, um, which we need to remind ourselves of the gospel, but there's something powerful about someone else telling us. Because I can, if I preach the gospel to myself, I tend to not believe myself because I know I'm a liar. So, uh, so I don't believe me as much as I believe you. Like I need Brad Gray, or I need Eric Sorensen, or I need somebody outside of me again so the same kind of thing right somebody that's not me i need something objective someone outside of me to proclaim to me again the finished work the work of christ this is why it's so important for pastors to do this for their congregation they're there you need to proclaim the forgiveness of sins to those people you need to proclaim what christ has done to them and then if you are someone who is doing the proclaiming you need to go find ways to have other people proclaim that to you. This is one of the one of the real dangers in, in ministry is that the pastor so often doesn't get the forgiveness of sins proclaimed to him because mm, yeah. uh, he's the one that's always doing it. Uh, so pastors need preachers. Uh, and again, it doesn't have to be another pastor, but they need preachers. God always sends a preacher. This is what he does with the prophets. This is what he does. You know, This is why Paul says, blessed are the feet of the one who goes and uh, proclaims good news, right? Uh, this is this is sort of the job of every Christian, the priesthood of all believers, to proclaim this gospel to each other, um, so that so that we can all hear it from a voice outside of us. Well, and this is so often. I think the problem with like um, I, I know you guys probably have both had experiences with uh, accountability groups or accountability partners or that sort of thing. And what it always, what it almost always ends up being is both, you know, you do end up confessing to each other most of the time in these accountability groups, but it ends up instead being a time where you go like, oh, come on, man, we need to spur on each other to love and good works and we need to stop doing this. And then what ends up happening because you guys are just sort of exhorting each other to stop doing whatever sins you're committing is one or both or many, depending on how large the group is, start feeling like they need to kind of hide their sin a little more. They don't feel comfortable because it's like, oh man, dude, we're going to get together for the fourth week in a row and I still got the same stupid problem. And he's just going to, he's just going to pound me with the law. And, uh, you know, I'm just going to tell him this week I'm, I'm doing okay. 
I'm doing all right. Well, you know, that, that leads to spiritual darkness then, right? That's leads to blindness. And that leads to, uh, it, not the kind of openness and transparency that God calls us to. What if, what if in our accountability groups, we just got rid of the accountability idea in, not entirely, but we replaced it with, you know, uh, forgiveness groups or groups, you know, a, a partner that can be there to when we do confess, we can be confident that we're going to hear you are forgiven. You are forgiven. Uh, because if we don't hear that, then no matter how much exhortation we're given, it, it's not going to give us the fuel to fulfill what we're being told to do. Yeah. The gospel alone does that. Yeah, this happens all the time uh, uh, where you will see uh, people go into uh, an office, right? Uh, like a pastor's office, and they'll go there and they will be wanting to confess so they'll go and say hey i'm struggling with blank and blank thing and so often the pastor swings and misses because he gives him a bunch of advice which i'm not saying that the advice is bad but what is deep in the heart of the christian is they are go they are seeking out absolution uh, they might not even know it but they're they 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 know deep down that i'm gonna especially when they do it with a pastor that they're going to this person i'm gonna go talk to him uh that that's what he's there for, right? Like he's, he must have something for me. And man, we really mess it up when we, we hear someone confess their sin and, or admit their struggle. Uh, and all we give them is advice or, uh, some tips on maybe how to overcome that thing. And we don't say, I hear that confession and I want you to know that Christ has paid for that sin, that you are his baptized child, that you are a child of God. Uh, and that God reckons you righteous for the sake of Christ. Uh, you you need that word in that office. Well, and as you guys were saying, uh, that's the word that I need, and that's the word that I hope to preach to whoever, wherever, whatever venue I'm in. I don't care who it is. That's and, and that's what I am striving to to proclaim. And I was I've been struck by the passage you read, Dan, from Romans five, but also as it is in conjunction with Isaiah 53, um, because there, I, I was struck by this recently, uh, just when you were talking about objectiveness and this idea that Jesus takes our place and what Eric was talking about as Christ was made sin, to be made our sin. And I, I haven't been able to escape the last two verses of Isaiah 53 in which the prophet writes, um, after his anguish, this is in verse 11, he will see light and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as a spoil, because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. And he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. And that idea that he's carrying the iniquities of the rebels for whom he is interceding for and for whom he is being counted one of is it just hits me in the face with the fact of hey this is a done objective deal already and uh i only have to uh, believe in it uh it's not it's not something i have to conjure up it's it's already done yeah yeah so yeah some translations say he was numbered with the transgressors mm, yeah. um and this and this is that like think if you think about this this is talking about how god views this whole thing and and that god numbers his son with the transgressors of the world 
he's numbered with them. So when God counts up the transgressors, uh, there there stands Christ. Uh, with and and there stands Christ in the, at the cross alone. So when God says, "Where are the transgressors at?" There is one man, the man Christ. Uh, it's a it's a powerful powerful image that that Isaiah paints. And that's why it's so important to I think to uh, again not proof text but read the scriptures uh, and 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 connect not connect the dots but you read them with an eye to what has already gone before. And I think you can see that with Paul, especially, you know, you read Romans 4, as you guys have already discussed, he has an eye all over the place to the Old Testament and how Abraham was counted as righteous. And, and I think that's so important for not just the pastor, but for any any Christian studying the word, uh, not just to take the words as they are right in front of you, but to see the connections between them and uh, what has been written beforehand. Yeah. Well, righteousness is an interesting thing. It's something that I think that we don't understand that righteousness is a all or nothing proposition that you're not like sort of righteous or there's not like some people that are a little more righteous than other people. You never read about like, there was this righteous man and he was walking the earth and then he encountered this man who was even more righteous. Uh, this is not a thing. So you are either righteous or you are unrighteous. This is, this is the whole thing. And, and so when it says that, that Abraham was declared righteous, this means that he is utterly perfect in the eyes of God. He is fully righteous. You do not, you do not, uh, you're, you're, you're just as righteous on your worst day as your best day. And you are just as unrighteous on your best day if you are outside of Christ. This is, this is how this works. So righteousness is a, is an all or nothing uh, category. Uh, yeah, it's, it's black and white. It's in or out. It, it really is that stark. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and this is one of the things that you can get mixed up in is that you can kind of think that even the fulfilling of the law, uh, that Jesus sort of became like more and more righteous as he was like more and more obedient. But this is not how this works at all. Jesus is the righteous lamb of God. Now he does, he does of course obey the law, but that's not what made him righteous. He, he didn't become righteous because he obeyed the law. He obeyed the law because he is perfectly righteous, right? Um, it's it's you, you can't put the the cart before the horse on that. Like the the right the fact that he is born righteous, uh, he does obey the law, uh, but part of fulfilling the law is this is the death because what the law demands is death. There's no mercy in the law. And so the wages of sin is death. And part the, the the culmination of the fulfillment of the law is actually not in all the obedience, but it's in the death of Christ. The law's demands are are fulfilled in his death. The, the law, like the laws, the law is done then, because all of the sin, if all the sin of the world is uh, assumed by Christ, and then Christ fulfills the law by dying for those sins. There, there is no more. Uh, there is no more law uh, that's looking to kill you, right? In that way, like yes, the law kills us and reveals our sin, but it's sin that we know has already been died for. So we've mentioned Romans five and Isaiah fifty three and Second Corinthians five. Is there any other uh, places we should go to uh, really get this in in the kind of stark detail that we get it in like in those passages? Is there any anywhere else we should we should go for if someone's wanting to investigate this a little bit more 
Well, Romans is is definitely the big book. I mean, and and Paul makes his longest string of arguments for this doctrine in Romans, really most clearly in Romans five, but uh, Romans three twenty two through twenty four. I mean, if you you read that, you'll see it there too, uh, where he says there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So all have sinned, and then the contrast, all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And that's, again, Romans three twenty-two through 24. We mentioned the first Timothy passage where it says clearly that Jesus gave himself as a ransom uh, for all men. Uh, the second Corinthians five passage is uh, a good one. And, uh, and then you also have in first John two, two, uh, where John says that Jesus is the atonement, not just for the sins of those in the church, but for the sins of the whole world. Yeah. You know, Eric, the, the text that you brought up in, in Romans three it is interesting that he says are justified. Uh, yeah. This is part of that objective already doneness of it. Not uh, all can be justified, but that all are. So the same the same group of people that have fallen short are justified. Uh, this is this is the universal objective nature of the thing. And then in John, uh, where it says he is the atonement or the, the propitiation for not only our sins but the sins of the whole world. The world the word world there is even a bigger word than just you know every every person, but the entire cosmos. Uh, and this is where it's actually the Greek word where we get the word cosmos. And what is what this means then is that that God has in Christ redeemed the entire earth. We hear that the earth is groaning out and cry that all of creation, everything that God has created, is is in, is redeemed in Christ. Uh, so, so it's a huge thing. Another text that it doesn't talk about this, but Peter just makes this sort of subtle remark that doesn't make any sense apart from this. Uh, in Second Peter, in the first the first verses of chapter two, where he says, "False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who secretly bring in destructive heresies." So these are not great people; these are false prophets. You know, they're deceivingly bringing in uh, horrible heresies. But he says this: bringing in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them. And and so here you have Peter just sort of just say, well, he's, this isn't the doctrinal point he's making, but it's just wrapped, it's just baked into the cake that he's presenting, that the people who bring in destructive heresies, uh, they do this, and some of these heresies deny the master who bought them. And so this is to say that that Christ has already purchased even the heretics. I mean, like the worst, of, not just like the random sinner, but the people who are bringing in Christ-denying heresies, they do this denying the one who has purchased them. Yeah. So that's a, I mean, that's a fairly, um, I mean, we could go more in depth, but, um, you know, just to say this is taught not merely by Paul, this is taught by John, this is taught by Peter. So you get a pretty good spread of the entire new Testament in which this concept is brought up. Yeah. Yeah. And then of course, of course, in the old Testament, um, in the Isaiah passage that you mentioned and other places as well. So if if oh, if someone wants to keep reading on this doctrine, is there any sort of theological book that you can recommend that might uh, go into this topic at length? 
You know, it's interesting, Brad, you asked me that, and I don't know if there is a work expressly about universal objective justification. Do you know, Eric? I mean, one of the, one of the books that definitely touches on this, the book that I like, it's, it's a little heady, uh, but there's a book called The Self-Donation of God, which is one of the greatest titles ever. Uh, but The Self-Donation yeah, of God, Kilcrease, yeah, right? yeah. yeah, Jack Kilcrease. Um, that's a great book. It definitely is in, it definitely is in there. Uh, among a bunch of other things, so that's a great book. Like I said, it, it's a it is a little uh, heady. I mean, not not terribly. I mean, you could most people I think could handle it, but it's definitely not sort of this um, you know casual read. Uh, you want to sit down and be awake when you're reading it. Yeah, I, I mean, as far as other recommendations, uh, Dan and Brad, it's if you go to various systematic theologies um, and some of you know. Um, you can find it in there, but again, you're talking about stuff that's gets pretty heady. Um, it, there's not a whole, I can't think of anything that's sort of, you know, written for, uh, non-theological or non-theologian type, uh, audiences right now. Uh, so I'd have to be digging into that, but it is, it is taught in, uh, various systematic theologies and in, in, um, at least the Augsburg Confession or the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. I mean, it's it's there. Also, uh, I I am I have been over the last two years compiling things to at some point um, release a book that very much deals with this. Uh, so it's uh, it's still in the writing process, but uh, at some point uh, I will be releasing a book called uh, the uh, called Sin Thief: uh, The Criminal Identity of Christ and. Uh, that will deal with it in in more lay terms uh, pretty heavily. Oh, good. I know that Capon, he talks about a lot of these things uh, throughout his works, uh, but you have to kind of dig and find them a lot of times because he plays fast and loose with a lot of things that he talks about many times. But he, yeah, it's, uh, sort, of, it's, his sort, work, of, it's sort of a doctrine that's terrible. Yeah. Yeah, it's sort of a doctrine that's scattered throughout all kinds of works, uh, but I don't, there's not a lot of works that, uh, that are just about this. Hmm. Yeah, well, that's a good market for you then, Dan. <laughs> well, I think a little bit like it's it's it is a a little bit of an obscure um, doctrine when you when you buy that name. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of people when you say that that I can't tell you how many you're not you're not the first person, Brad, that's been like, whoa, 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 what? Um, and then when you kind of flush it out, they're like, okay, yeah, 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 I'm tracking with you. I'm tracking with you. Um, the term universal objective justification is sort of a Lutheran term. Um, and so, uh, we throw it around, um, because me and Eric happen to both be Lutherans, but, and, and within Lutheran circles, Lutheran theologians and pastors know what you're talking about. But if you're not in those circles, sometimes you have to sit down and flush it out. And usually people are like, okay, yeah, I see that. And maybe they even call it something else or, yeah. um, but uh, but it's, I think it is it's the sort of uh, objective part of it that throws people off, uh, and and there is this sort of danger with it where or a perceived danger where people are like, oh man, that's that sounds dangerous, and that I think goes to the heart of people just thinking the gospel is dangerous. Um, it's it's just there's a little like whoa, that sounds insanely unconditional, and you're like ah right, I mean it's pretty unconditional. It's like completely done. <laughs> yeah. Well. Uh... I have so appreciated you guys' time. Uh, you are, are always a pleasure to talk to. Is, is there anything you want to plug or promote uh, at the end here that you want to kind of get people's interest in? Well, I mean, I suppose since you asked, <laughs> Dan and I did co-write a book 
called Scandalous Stories, which is a, a sort of commentary on the parables of Jesus. Uh, and you can pick that up on Amazon or uh, go to 1517.org and, and you'll find it there. Uh, and then also, you know, Dan and I will be releasing another book that we've co-written on the miracles of Jesus um, in the next few months. And so keep an eye out for that too. Yeah. And then, uh, of course, if you want to listen to me and Eric riff on the old, uh, or on the New Testament, we uh, co-host the podcast 30 Minutes in the New Testament, which is on iTunes and every other podcasting platform. So uh, if you are a podcast listener, which apparently you are because you're listening to this one right now uh, and you haven't ever checked out 30 Minutes in the New Testament and you didn't think me and, ter- uh, me and Eric were terrible, uh, you can go check that out. <laughs> If anyone's listening, you're going to love Dan and Eric a lot more than me. So definitely go listen to those podcasts. Thank you again, guys, for your time. And I look forward to when our paths cross again in the future. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Brad. Thanks, Brad. All right. That's it for today's episode of Ministry Minded. Thanks again to Dan and Eric for coming on the show. Make sure you read the blog notes for all the Uh, links that were talked about in this episode and there's a ton of great resources that'll be listed there Uh, and thanks so much for listening if you like what you just heard be sure to subscribe to the show on itunes or on spotify or on anchor fm Uh, thanks again to the christian standard bible for sponsoring the show and thank you as always for listening commenting and subscribing thanks i'll see you on the next episode blessings